care for people who care. Hi, today we are here at the Outreach Teen and Family Services office to record our fifth episode. We will be discussing the connection between mental health and law enforcement. Our guests for today's episode are Dr. Tracy Scanlon, the clinical director here at Outreach Team and Family Services, and Chief of Police in Mount Lebanon, Aaron Loth. Thank you for being here. We are so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, you guys can introduce yourselves if you feel comfortable. Dr. Scanlon, you can go first. Well, I think you did a pretty good job introducing me. I'm Dr. Scanlon, and I'm the clinical director at Outreach Team and Family Services. I'm happy to be here this evening. And I'm Chief Aaron Law, Chief of Police here in Mount Lebanon. I've been with the Mount Lebanon Police Department for about 24 years. Uh, I've been chief for the last six. Also a resident of the community. I have two kids that go to Howell Elementary and Mellon Middle School. Before we get started, we'd like to shout out St. Clair Health, who is our first annual sponsor. At St. Clair Health, we're always improving, building on our commitment to face the challenges of today, making an impact on the communities we serve so we can be stronger together. St. Clair Health, expert care from people who care. And now we're going right into our fast five questions. So first, for Chief Louth, we have penguins or Steelers? <laughs> Steelers, always been a Steelers fan. Dr. Scanlon? Uh, penguins, absolutely penguins. Yeah, I'm definitely hockey penguins, too. Just because my sister plays hockey, I have to go penguins, too. All right, our next one is um, coffee or tea. I'm definitely a coffee person. So. I'm iced coffee every morning. Dr. Scanlon? Uh, no, no iced coffee, just regular coffee. Me, none of the above. Ooh. I've never been a coffee or no a tea caffeine? drinker. Wow. Uh, pop, that's about it. <laughs> Okay, our next one we have is pool or beach? Um, probably the beach. I like the pool, no sand. Dr. Scanlon? Uh, I, I, I have very white Irish skin with freckles everywhere. I don't like the beach or the heat or the sun. They give me winter or fall at the time. That's fair. Beach, definitely. I love the beach and <laughs> can't wait to move there. <laughs> Okay, um, TV or movies? I personally definitely prefer something I can get through in an episode. What about you, Sid? I like TV just because I've been binging the series Peaky Blinders, and it's really good. I love it. Dr. Scanlon? Uh, TV, yeah. TV for sure for me. I don't have that long of an attention span. That was four for four. That was a real fun. <laughs> okay, our last one is sweet or savory. Uh, I definitely have a big sweet tooth. Mine's sweet as well. Dr. Scanlon? Savory for sure. Ooh. Sweet for me. There we go. Okay, so now we're going to um, jump right into the content and start off with a question that, um, a trend that we've been seeing, I think everyone has over the last few years, maybe because there are more incidents or because they're more commonly documented with the, you know, everyone having a cell phone and a camera at all times. There seem to be um, increasingly contentious interactions between people in mental health crises and law enforcement. Do you have any experience with this trend or do you think it's being properly represented? Yeah, I, I think I agree with you. I, I think it is something that we have seen an increase, at least definitely for response of our officers to these types of calls. Um, 
you know, there's could be a lot of different reasons for this. Um, you know, I, I think if you really look back, uh, a lot of the inpatient care for a mental health related crisis uh, or, or people that were, were suffering from mental health related crisis, you know, there was a lot more inpatient care. There were a lot more facilities that people were placed in uh, since the closing of a lot of those facilities and those in, inpatient options for care. Uh, those individuals, you know, that are facing crisis are in our communities, you know, and, and those types of crises, when they happen, are, uh, are are more apparent, you know, to to those around. And it, it is really a uh, a trend that we're seeing, and we're trying to do a lot at the police department to figure out ways to help those people that are in need. Yeah, and obviously the news and social media usually shows us the bad stuff with like one headline or like kind of clickbait, some people call it, um, which is not always representative of the true trends. Do you find that sometimes, like, true? Yeah, I definitely do. You know, you might see a a quick five-second, ten-second clip of a video, but you don't often see the entire lead-up to that ten-second or five-second clip. There's usually a lot more involved in that. You know, all of our police officers wear body cameras. Uh, That's one of the main reasons why. So we have the entire incident recorded. So it's not just that five or 10 second clip or somebody showing up, you know, late to the party that's actually not knowing everything that, that's happened or led up to that point. So, yeah, I, I think that a lot of those videos aren't a fair representation of, of yeah. what actually caused that situation to develop the way it did. Dr. Scanlon, do you have anything to add to that one? Nothing earth-shattering. I mean, nothing I think that anyone would consider very new. But what I will say is, in my experience, I don't necessarily know that um, there's an increase in the tension between folks with mental health and uh, law enforcement. I think there's an increase in untreated, undiagnosed mental health across the country. Um, And when they decentralize, like the chief said, when they decentralize the hospitals that sort of left the community on its own to be policing um, folks that probably aren't healthy enough to be out in the community without support. So I also think you might see an increase in such things because the law enforcement folks are so much more willing um, and prepared these days to go out and respond um, to such matters, which, you know, Ten years ago, twenty years ago, that probably wasn't the case. And, and lastly, I would say, to me, it's a no-brainer that, that the media skews the um, skews what's being represented. But I also think that there's just a bent in media altogether in the last three to five years that's very anti-police. Um, and so when I, I think when you see that, when when a, a, an episode occurs. It, some of the news stations are more likely to grab onto that so that it's sexy and provocative and can prove their point, which is that, you know, the police need to do things differently. So that, that, that's sort of my take on it. Yeah, thank you. And sometimes when people are in distress, it is more challenging for them to think logically. Someone on the outside may be able to see that that person needs help while the person in distress can't grasp that. What can you do for a person in crisis that can't see their need for care? That goes for both of you. Either can answer. Dr. Scanlon, I'll let you start with that one. Um, I don't know. I think there's any number of things, right? And it isn't, it, it isn't as if uh, we haven't, as a, by way of a sort of a, 
um, an ethical social contract, we have tried to be more responsive, um, be more at the ready for crises. If you go back to 9-11, changed um, in, in, by way of how we, re we report risk and we talk about um, long-term effects of critical incidents and police incidents and mental health crises on the general population. So, I mean, I, I think what we need to be moving more towards these days is um, training probably folks somewhere in between mental health clinicians and law enforcement agents who can support and act as the liaison uh, when there's a crisis situation. And in other parts of the country, some, some states are doing that a little bit better, but this is Pennsylvania, so we know we're going to have to wait a while before, before it comes down the pipe to us. But I, you know, I think in Allegheny County, for 30 years, there's been a crisis unit. Uh, it was cactus in the old days, and then it was something else after that, and now it's resolved. And I think just by way of acknowledging that those service exi services exist, we acknowledge that there, there is a, a crisis component that often needs to be implemented when a person is in psychological distress. I think in, probably for, for police officers, they've seen that more during domestics, when they get called out on domestics than in any, or when someone is altered um, by alcohol. And now this, these days, you have to combine that with the opioid epidemic. And I, I mean, you... You cannot deny that when you're showing up on scene, people are altered sometimes psychologically, sometimes physiologically, and, and that is the response being punitive only is never going to end well for anyone. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we're trying to focus on here locally is that that step in between, you know, law enforcement and that that crisis response. We've seen over the years, unfortunately, that uh, just like a lot of professions, the, the, the crisis response teams are understaffed. You know, they're busy. They're handling a lot of a lot of different calls in a lot of different places around Allegheny County. So they're not always as accessible as we've we've preferred that they would be. And you know, we look at it, you know, in terms of a a response that requires a, a specialty. It requires somebody that has a, a level of training, a level of expertise to above and beyond what police officers typically do. You know, we're, we're called because there's no one else to call when, when that situation gets to the point where it's so completely out of control that the only number that people have left to call is nine one one. Police are the ones that respond. And we try to handle, we try to de-escalate that situation as best we can. We try to listen, we try to help in whatever way is possible. And, you know, we've, we've asked and we continue to ask and we're continuing to work towards programs that involve getting that extra level of expertise, that specialty, specially trained person to the scene to help with those situations to hopefully set that person up for better success. Yeah, I remember, I think it was one of our first board meetings that we were ever on you led it, and it was working to get that team um, to respond to mental health crises. And it was the police would respond first, but they would like transition the um, call over to like a mental health professional or someone that could like better handle the situation. Um, and I don't know. I think that would be really good for the community, especially like when you guys are still working on it. 
Right. And that's, that's honestly the way I think public safety needs mm -hmm. to go. It's not just about police. It's not just about fire. It's not just about EMS. It needs to have this mental health, behavioral health component to it as well with people that are especially trained in that discipline. So ultimately they can help. And just as important to me that the initial, as the initial crisis response is the follow up with that individual yeah. after the fact, you know, we can resolve the crisis on the scene. We can deescalate it, you know, but I think that these types of programs will only be successful if you can have proper follow-up for that individual. Yeah. So you continue, you have that, that continuity of care, that continuation of care for that person. So ultimately they can get that successful resolution to whatever yeah. it is they're experiencing. Yeah. And with the whole like holistic aspect of care, you now have that 911 number and you have the mental health number that they just made. 988. That's coming out next year. Yep. Yeah. So that'll help at least in ways so community members can call. Yeah. It's important to have that uh, multi-step approach, I think. So kind of on the flip side of the coin of people not being able to see to their own need of care, there's um, a lot of situations where people are in crisis and the people around them are unaware of it. Um, people can be really skilled and good at hiding their, um, their, whether they may be a risk to themselves or others. Like we've seen time and time again in situations like Columbine and in Parkland and countless other tragedies that it's easy to miss warning signs and it can often end up with someone hurting themselves or obviously hurting others so what is the best way that people can do can, that people can be more aware and cognizant of anyone that could be potential risk to themselves or others dr scanlon do you want to start this one sure i mean i think one of the big, one of the very basic ways um which i think is has been um growing in popularity over the last five or six years is that you know, I, I think the general population needs to be more well-trained um, in mental health first aid. Um, we, you know, we used to make sure that everybody that worked in most professional settings uh, or was working with the public or in a social human services way, you know, had um, first aid training for, you know, physical ailments so that they could respond in the immediate until the experts got um on site, um, and I, I, I think a mental health first aid training program, which they exist all over the country, and, and we've, we've gone out and done many of those trainings and outreach, I, I think people find them really super helpful, and they're not just for parents, they're not just for teens, it's just general learning how to do the quick response like you would if someone, um, you know, had a, a, heart, a, a cardiac episode in front of you you would quickly do the basic things that you know and then you would call 911 to get the experts on the on the ground but not as many people as we might think understand some of the really obvious signs of distress with say depression and panic general anxiety um and so i i think just educating us as a culture and as a society better could be very helpful. Now, the warning there is always it's not everybody's job to be an expert at this, right? I mean, when this has happened with teachers, the chief mentioned, you know, continuity of care. Finally, you know, we're, we're building in systems in schools where um, 
the mental health folks are just a part of the everyday curriculum environment. Um, and, and, and I think that's what we need to do in public safety as well, that there has to be almost no, no, no silo. It shouldn't be the, the police are in a silo, the social workers are in a silo, you know, firefighters in a silo. Uh, you know, having um, access to anyone in public safety and every one of those silos having an expert to lend to the other silo is really ideal to me. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so we're in the middle of our content here, I'd like to pause and thank St. Clair Health once again for their generosity in sponsoring the first season of Teens Tap In. At St. Clair Health, we're always improving, building on our commitment to face the challenges of today, making an impact on the communities we serve so we can be stronger together by creating reliable resources that recognize all of our neighbors with access to the highest quality health care, advanced care close to home, and a shared humanity that delivers on our joint vision to create a healthier community for all. St. Clair Health, expert care from people who care. And now moving on to our next question. When someone ends up in a mental health care setting involuntarily, what is the clinical difference between being involuntarily hospitalized and being able to refuse care? Dr. Scanlon, do you have any comments on this one? Well, I'm going to punch the chief on that because I, I, I think the legal part is, is something he could explain a little bit better, and then I can I can take it from there. Yeah, chief, if you want to touch on like 302 warrants and other in intervention. Sure. Yeah. You know, we, we, uh, that's something that we encounter on a pretty regular basis. Um, like I mentioned before, a lot of times we're not actually getting to the scene until it, it's really gotten bad. Yeah. You know, it's gotten to the point where basically the, whoever's around the individual has run out of other options. Like a so, last resort. Exactly. Exactly. So we go, you know, we do the best we can to obviously make sure the person is okay at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no safety related issues going on, you know, anything like that. And then, you know, we try to provide the options that, that are available. Sometimes those are voluntary options. The person might realize that they've, they've hit a, hit a, point where they need some assistance. Uh, and sometimes it's not voluntary. You know, sometimes those are the situations where we have to really involve the people around that individual, whether it be family members, friends, whoever it is, because us as police just arriving on scene, we don't know what led up to that mm -hmm. until people start to tell us the, the story. You know, and we really tried to involve family members. We tried to involve the, the direct, uh, you know, acquaintances of that individual to ultimately petition for an involuntary commitment if it's necessary. Um, you know, a lot of instances we will see individuals that, you know, when we get on scene, they've sort of realized that this has gotten pretty bad mm -hmm. and maybe I need to talk to somebody. And we do our best, our officers do our best to convince the person that, you know, might, might be beneficial for them to do that. Yeah. Um, the difference is legally, if it's an involuntary commitment, they don't have a choice. They, they have to go. You know, they have to go to a facility. They have to, you know, go into that inpatient setting. They have to, it's usually 72 hours unless the medical facility or the mental health facility decides that it needs to be less than that. But usually it's at least 72 hours in that facility for them to adequately be seen and cared for and, and talk to someone. On the other end of things, the voluntary commitment, that is purely voluntary. Mm -hmm. You know, if they decide once they get there, you know what, I'm not, I'm not into this anymore, then they can leave. And, and there's nothing that holds them there for that. So 
we've seen it work a couple different ways. You know, unfortunately, there are some folks that don't want to be involuntarily committed, but they probably need to be, yeah. you know, and that's the situations where we're really dependent on that system and the people involved in the mental, mental health system to be able to adequately provide the level of care that that person needs. Mm -hmm. Do you ever see a pattern of people that um, either refuse care initially or end up in care and then out of it, you know, needing help again, like shortly thereafter? We do. Yeah. Unfortunately, sometimes we, we encounter individuals that, that do, you know, they seem to get into the system and they, they aren't getting, probably aren't getting all the assistance they need because obviously the situation, once they return to their home, to whatever the setting is that they were in previously, you know, they kind of just revert back to, to whatever was going on previously. So, yeah, unfortunately we do. I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, that continuation of care, that, that extra level that we've been talking about, I think that will be very helpful in those types of situations because even if that inpatient or that particular setting that they were sort of forced into as a result of whatever happened, you know, now we have an extra layer, you know, within the community that can provide them with some different resources or coordinate those different resources that they may need. Yeah. Dr. Scanlon, do you have a comment on that? Yeah, I do. I mean, all right, thanks for explaining the 201 and the 302 differences, Chief. But, I mean, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated because, it's not a very well kept secret that the system um, doesn't work very well so far as um, institutionalizing, even temporarily institutionalizing folks against their their will. That, that, that's it's the least desirable situation of all. But but the other part of this, if we're, if we're talking about why we need to change this system and get sort of a more community based approach going, is that you know. Police officers, um, therapists, physicians, they often um, try to send someone to uh, the emergency room because they, they have a fear of imminent risk. And the emergency room folks you know, just screen them again, you know, send them back out. Now, I think some of that is because some particular hospital systems weren't very uh, uh, well-prepared for that population. Um, but I also think now, more than ever, it's, it's staff shortages, too. And we're going to see that for years and years to come now, uh, post-COVID. They're just, you know, in the old days, it was just that there were not enough beds. But really, there are not enough treatment providers and, and physical um, professionals on staff, on shift, to um, really take on the, the burden of, of, of some of this. I mean, it's just so, um, it can, it's, it's an epidemic of sorts, um, mm -hmm. because it's attached to the opioid epidemic in so many ways, but, um, it's, it's very difficult to convince someone who's really distressed and perhaps disconnected from their own logical reality to just follow suit and get in the squad car and be taken to the hospital and then have them stay. And the other thing is, on the outside looking in, those of us who might be at the scene can see it all, we've heard it all, we know there's risk, but by the time a person gets to the hospital, gets to the emergency room, if they do not articulate very specific sounding threats, the, the hospital has no choice but to turn them away. Yeah. I mean, as far as involuntary, involuntary commitment goes. So it's, it's just very complex. 
Yeah. And um, you guys both mentioned community input. Um, but people often see receiving treatment, especially inpatient, being like a taboo subject. Um, what is the best way people can support the person in treatment during and after their experience? And how do you think we can get more community support around this topic? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I think that the support for an individual that's suffering some sort of crisis is key. You know, mm -hmm. the, the fact that they have support around them, those are the individuals that we typically see as being much more successful. You know, the individuals, unfortunately, that don't have that support are the ones that seem to sort of fall through the cracks. And those are the ones we end up going on multiple calls for similar reasons. So I know that not every individual is going to have that level of support, whether it be from family or, or friends or whatever it is. And I think that, again, going back to what I've said several times, I think that additional responder, that crisis type response that we've discussed you know, I think that individual will be able to provide some of that ongoing care and that ongoing consultation for that person. Um, yeah, and I, I do understand the the taboo nature of mm -hmm. some of this stuff. You don't want to be labeled with that. You don't want it to affect you, you know, in the future. And we see that a lot with, with families and especially with kids, you know, and it, it's a very difficult uh, situation to be involved in. And I think we're very fortunate in this community that we've always had outreach. Yeah. You know, it's a local organization. It's somebody that we often refer families to, often refer teenagers to, to, uh, to get some assistance that they need, you know, at, at, a, at a local facility. You know, we're not asking them to go downtown. We're not asking them to go to the hospital. We're asking them to stop up on Washington Road and mm -hmm. talk to somebody that can really help them. So I think that's always been a benefit to our community. And I think that building on that, if we're able to expand that to a warm handoff of that individual to a specially trained uh, social worker, counselor, crisis yeah. responder, that I think we're going to see much more success for individuals. Yeah. Dr. Scanlon, do you have anything about the taboo in the community? So, um, I do think that we've come a long way, baby, as they say, right? As so far as the, 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 generally speaking, more people are accepting, quote-unquote, of um, outpatient therapy, especially when it's based in the community, especially when it's voluntary, especially when we're not using a lot of uh, psychological mumbo-jumbo. Um, and in this community, you know, people have embraced outreach, and it's not, to me, for the most part, I have not um, experienced people being weary about uh, using the service that they have had times when parents have said, um, is there a back door because I don't want my kid to walk past his friends at Betsy's Ice Cream to go in the building because then all of his friends will know. I mean, I think that is so, that, that pains me to hear that, but I totally get it, which is also a benefit of our new space, by the way, because we're in a hub now of all kinds of other professionals, but as far as the inpatient stuff goes, I don't think we've done very much over the last several decades um, once the institutions started closing. I, I, don't, I think we just ignore that inpatient population and assume it's, um, that's their problem and our problem isn't that severe. Yeah, I mean, I think as someone that's candidly been in mental health treatment in some capacity for the majority of my life, I mean, when you break your arm, you go and get it you know, you go to the emergency room, you get checked out when uh, you're in a cast. I mean, just because what you're going through isn't visible on the outside doesn't mean that it's not something that you 
you can't talk about or that I mean I, I get why people don't talk about it but I think when you're having these conversations that's when people realize uh, you know I'm not alone I, I think for people that are new new experiencing new feelings that might um you know prompt them to get treatment um you kind of feel crazy and are like why why is this happening to me or you know what's going on here but i think when you know other people are going through it you kind of feel like okay maybe this isn't like just something that's you know a short circuit in my head but it's Mm -hmm. i mean it's i think we need to get to a point where like i said you you break your arm or you you know, you sprain your ankle, you go get treatment. And I think that's where we need to get with mental health. Yeah. So lastly, this podcast would not be possible without the support of St. Clair Health. Please listen to the following ad and we'll be back. At St. Clair Health, we're always improving, building on our commitment to face the challenges of today, making an impact on the communities we serve so we can be stronger together. St. Clair Health, expert care, from people who care. And we would like to say thank you to all of our listeners for your support. We'd love to hear from you to think about what else you'd like us to talk about. Please send feedback and ideas to podcasts at outreachteen.org. It's podcasts with an S at outreachteen.org. And now for some of the outreach happenings. So the first thing that we have coming up is um, the Youth Youth Advocacy Committee. this is something that Sid and Maggie and um, Sid and Maggie and I and Outreach are very proud of and excited for. Uh, Sid and I are both graduating here in June, so we're looking for people that will be um, interested in sort of taking over the roles that we've been so happy to fill. So we're looking for a group of kids that might be interested in using their voice to broaden Outreach's mission and reach your peers in the communities we serve attend monthly meetings to develop and implement mental wellness program ideas that you're passionate about. You might even get to uh, fill the shoes of podcast hosts. So um, if you're a parent and you're, you think your kid might be a good fit, if you're a kid and you think you might be a good fit, um, you can go ahead and reach out to Maggie Zangara, the program manager. At, um, her email address is M Z A N. G-A-R-A at outreachteen.org. And now for our bi-monthly newsletters. Every other month, Outreach will send out a topical newsletter with information pertinent to parents as they navigate the ages and stages of development of their children and quarterly counselor chats. The supportive program members have exclusive access to master's level clinicians four times a year. Do you have questions? Our counselors will be able to assist you in finding answers. All right, that's all we have for you this month. Um, We just want to give a big thank you to Dr. Scanlon and Chief Loth, um, and we look forward to hearing from you guys and talking to you again next month. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in the Teens Tap In podcast represent the opinions of the hosts and their guests. The views and opinions expressed by Outreach Teen and Family Services employees, donors, and volunteers are their own and do not necessarily reflect the view of Outreach Teen and Family Services or the show's sponsors. The content here should not be taken as counseling advice. 
The content here is for informational purposes only, and because each person is unique, please consult your mental health provider or physician for any mental health counseling or other medical questions. The podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including, but not limited to, establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. If you find any error in any of the content of the podcast, please contact us at podcasts at outreachteen.org. Outreach Teen and Family Services, its sponsors, donors, and partners expressly disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages whatsoever arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented in this podcast. Please go to www.outreachteen.org to see the complete notice and disclaimer for the podcast episodes.